Sarah would like me to make an announcement for you guys, and that is, uh, you guys keep leaving your Bibles here all the time. And if you go back to the Welcome Center, we got a stack of Bibles. I understand you're probably thinking, I can read it on my phone. I have the app. This is great. Because nothing beats a hard copy. Because if the sun throws a solar flare and all of your devices just go, you're going to know how to open it with pages and find it. And it would be amazing. So the whole bunch back there. And I made this last service, made this announcement. And then uh, Eric Ferrari, uh, Eric Ferrari gets up and leaves his Bible in his seat and walks out the door. I'm like, ah, I should text him right now and say, Eric Ferrari, let's do that. (laughs) This is great for the live stream. All right, everybody go like this. (laughs) Never going to forget his Bible again. Hey, welcome to Elman if you are new. <laughs> don't leave your Bible later. No. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one or just go to the Welcome Center and grab one. <laughs> if you forgot one, you can use one. But if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take it with you. Please just, just grab that. Um, if you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get all the stuff we go through today, including the sermon notes. Uh, sermon notes are on the communion tables throughout the room, also hard copies. And on the left-hand side, you get a half-page recap of what we're talking about. On the right-hand side, you're going to get questions that you can remind one another about as we talk about them this week. The verses we're going through on the back and a place for notes. And I think that's all my things, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Sometimes I'm really sorry for my attitude. I want you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Sometimes. Sorry is a relative term. This is going to be the live stream, isn't it? Because you messed up last service. Yeah! All right. That's a joyful church with a sarcastic pastor. All right. Uh, this is James 5, verses 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Ooh, let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would take us and teach us what it means to be a people who understand that everything we have has first come generously from your hands and that we would not become self-centered and self-focused, but we would look out beyond ourselves, understanding the gifts that you've given to us and then teaching us how to be a blessing to those around us. So teach us to be those who live and walk in this world in ways that honor you in all things as we begin to live in the joy that you have first provided to us. Amen. Have a seat. So we are going through the New Testament book of James. We are starting chapter 5 today. We're going to spend five weeks in chapter 5, so 5 by 5. And if I just went straight with my messages in the book of James, this message would have fallen on Easter if I didn't change the Easter message for something else. And it would have been the strangest Easter message I have ever given. Because originally going through the book of James, I was going to do it a couple years ago, which would have actually, Easter would have fallen on a week that was about prayer. It would have been really nice. Uh, But this would have fallen on the week about money and the evils of money. So if you brought family last week, you're welcome. I changed that for you. Uh, This is essentially probably one of the most offensive sections that people think is in the book of James because when James talks about the evils and the rich, sometimes people don't understand how and why it's written the way that it is. As a matter of fact, these verses were so offensive that there was a social reformer about 60 years ago. His name is Upton Sinclair, and he paraphrased these verses to a group of ministers. And after he paraphrased the verses, he attributed them to a lady named Emma Goldman, who was considered an anarchist. And after he did that, 
All of these ministers wanted Emma Goldman deported. It seems like times have changed, but not much changes in this. So if you have a Bible, open to James chapter 5. It's on page 655 if you have an element Bible. And what is so offensive about these verses? Glad you asked. We're going to talk about that. There's six verses we're going through today. We're going to start at the beginning with the first three. We're going to end with the last three and kind of bring it all together. But we need to understand how James means this in his culture, but also how we can then put it in our own. So James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. The word howl there actually sounds like a howl in the Greek text. It's like, oh, go solo. You guys don't care. All right. Uh, But weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Imagine that on Easter. Jesus is risen. Happy Easter. Here we go. We're going to resurrect some things in our life because we will look at the gospel in the midst of this. Now, we have to take these verses seriously because when we read these verses, we tend to think those aren't written to me because that's written to rich people, and obviously I'm not a rich person. This is like verses in the Old Testament where it talks about don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. You think, well, I don't have an ox, and I've never muzzled an ox, and I don't have to worry about that verse. And not really thinking about what that verse could actually mean for all of us. And so we hear this, and we think, oh, thank God these verses aren't for me. I'm not rich. Going out to eat for me is like going to McDonald's, so obviously this doesn't apply. Okay, let's just see if I can change your mind on that. Keep your finger in James chapter 5, and now I want you to flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That is on page 644 if you have an element Bible, or if you're in the app, you just kind of went right there. You're there. Uh, Paul is writing in 1 Timothy to his young protege named Timothy. Uh, Timothy is like a church planter. He's got a kind of a younger church. He's a younger pastor, and Paul is writing a whole lot of things to this congregation about how to live and act in the world as a congregation that follows Jesus. So this is what he says towards the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul says this, as for the rich in this present age, And you just probably checked out again. Don't check out. Keep listening. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. When we read verses like this, it should make us take a step back, and instead of ignoring them, we should say, okay, who are they? Who are these rich people that James and Paul are both writing to? How do we decide whether we are rich or not? So I'm going to start with a premise here. I'm going to give you four points today. They're all going to sound vaguely the same. Uh, First one is this. You can write this down. Money is dangerous. Money is dangerous. And when I say that, I don't want you to be afraid of money. That's not what I mean, but it can be dangerous. Why? Because every single one of us wants more of it than we have. We all want to be rich in a way. And the way we tell ourselves if we are rich is we compare ourselves to other people and say, well, I don't have what they have, therefore I must not be rich. And so when I say money is dangerous, I don't mean money is bad. Don't mistake me, I said dangerous. One writer says this, The heart is deceptive, a love of money is deadly, and it's only the gospel that can deliver us from this. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, Fidelity, which is a company a lot of people have their 401ks, 403bs, IRAs through and things like that. Fidelity did a survey of 1,000 millionaires, and they asked them, do you feel rich? People in the survey had an average net worth of $3.5 million. Over 40% of them said, I do not feel rich. On average, they said, if I had $7.5 million, well, then I would be rich. 
Now, when I'm a kid growing up, I don't know about you, but you'd play Monopoly. I'm not a big board game fan, but we'd play. And you got a million bucks, that is Mr. Monopoly money. It's like I got Boardwalk and Park Place and you all landed on it. <laughs> you know, you can't pass go without giving me my, that's Mr. Monopoly money. But you want to guess who thinks having $7.5 million doesn't make you feel rich? Jesus! No, I know you're in church, right? But that's not the answer. People who have $7.5 million. That's who. Because we never feel like we have enough. When it comes to our financial lives, do we as a people tend to compare with people who make more than us or less than us? 50-50 chance. What do we do? More. We always say, oh, it's those people who have more than I do. That's who we compare ourselves with. And it ends up that it makes us be able to have a bias. And the bias always serves us the way that we want it to. Because as long as we can say, I'm not rich, we don't have to listen to those things in the scriptures that are written to the rich people. We can rationalize how we are not very generous and judge all those people who have more than us for being so materialistic and not as generous as I think they should be. And so listening to James honestly means we have to pop our denial bubble about our words and our hands and our hearts. So let me pop your denial bubble. Uh, one, people, one billion people on our planet today live on less than a dollar a day. The half of our planet today lives on less than $10 a day, and that's actually been rising. If your household income is $45,000 a year or more, you are in the 90th percentile of wealth in the world. If your household income is $120,000 or more, household, entire household, you are in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. You're a one percenter. How about that? When James writes this, most people struggle from one day to the next. And that has been the lot of the majority of the human race across most centuries. Jesus will say when he teaches us how to pray, Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. Why does he say that? Because daily, these people were struggling from one day to the next. And so biblically, to be rich is to have significantly more than you or I need to make it from one day to the next day. And what that means is, for most of us in this room, you're rich. You should look happier. Because <laughs> you made it. You can, you can write the book. You can give the seminar. Hell, I got rich. Aaron said so. There you go. Just put, put that down. Yeah, there are people around us who life for them is a struggle from one day to the next, which means as a body of believers, we come alongside one another and we help with resources with one another. But that doesn't mean we encourage people in their unrighteousness. It doesn't mean if someone has become poor because of unrighteousness, we continue to help them in that unrighteousness. What it means is we should be living righteous and generous lives. And this goes back to what James keeps asking. Do we believe what we really say we believe? Because there's something that goes on in our lives under this I don't feel rich mentality. Because being rich has the connotation in our minds that we would be content if we were rich or we'd feel successful or we'd feel secure. And because we don't feel like we have those things, we then don't feel like we have enough. And what we are doing is we are defining our identities by our own standards. And the scripture says that's not wise. That is not wise. This is why James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are rotted and your garments are moth-eaten your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire he says that because that's what's happening you never feel like you have enough everything is centered around you it's why that writer i mentioned made that statement a love of money is deadly and it's only the gospel that can deliver us from this 
This is why James says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. And I know sometimes when we read the Bible, we assume we know what it means, but let me tell you what he's actually saying here. The reason why money is dangerous, moth-eaten, rotted, corrosive, is we've trusted in it. And when we trust in that, we are trusting in the wrong thing. Our hope is in the wrong place. When our hope is in the wrong place, our lives pay for it. Our lives pay for it. So think, where is your hope in? I mean, your last day is coming. Are you saving? Oh, my hope is in my, my retirement and what I, what I have. Where is your hope? That's what James is asking. And you may be thinking, what does Aaron have against money? Nothing. I think it's great. I wish all of you had more and more of it. That would be wonderful if you, if you all did. But what is actually happening with our money is we are trying to find ways to find our security in it and not in Christ himself. Our money and how we spend it and how we feel about it, that is going to reflect our hearts. And Jesus actually says this in this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about this and he says, if you want to know what's really going on in your heart and our vernacular he would say you look at your bank account look at your credit card statement look at how you actually spend your money because that is not a way for other people to judge you this is a way for you to look at and know where your heart actually is what you're striving towards God gives us grace and that he enables the ability to steward the resources in our lives God didn't have to do that sometimes people are like well why would God give us this when we mess it up all the time God gives it to us because it's grace it's grace and enables us to see what our hearts are actually drawn towards. Other people cannot externally look and see how generous you are because they don't know what you make. Like you may have a house that is big enough for all of our houses to fit inside and you could still be one of the most generous people in the world. Our wallet is able to inform us about our lives and it tells us many times our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts keep telling us that we know exactly what we're supposed to do and we keep falling into to places that don't honor who God is. And this is why money can be grace and how you spend it because it will show you what your heart is actually drawn towards. Our wallet informs us because our hearts are deceitful. The default posture of most of our hearts is, I'm nailing it. I got it all together. If everybody else was just like me, the world would be a better place. We justify our behavior. And so Jesus says, don't trick yourself. Check your bank account. Check how you spend your money so you can see actually, honestly, how you are doing. Uh, point number two, if you want to write this down. Money is dangerous. All my points are going to kind of sound the same, but anyway. <laughs> money is dangerous because we use our wealth, as I said, as that safety net. We, we want it to save us from all of life's anxieties. I want a safer car. I want a safer neighborhood. I want a safer house. I want a house with an alarm system. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I, I want a moat around my house with sharks with laser beam eyes. That would just be amazing. Right? But we use our money as a type of future hope that will secure us against all of life's anxieties. And I saved enough. So, hey, I, I have enough. Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, Christian, he says this, riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties, and they become then the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties just about as well as the wolf that is put to tending the sheep. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor during World War II, stood against Hitler. He died for it, and this is what he said. Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry, but in truth, they are what cause anxiety. 
Let me show you what they're saying and how this is true. The first car I ever owned was a 1976 Ford Courier pickup. It has a rag for a gas cap and a pair of pliers to roll down the window. So when you got it, you got a free pair of pliers. It was great. Uh, it, would, it would rattle anything over 50 miles an hour when you're driving down the road. Um, sometimes out of the blue, the heater core would just break and you get showered with antifreeze. It was so wonderful. Every day I would get up to go to school in high school and I would, and I would start to turn that car on and I'd be like, dear God, please let it start. Uh, manual choke. Finally it would start. Oh, thank, thank God. Not even a Christian, but like, oh, thank God. And I'd drive it to school. Now I had a friend, not going to give you his name, but I had, I had a friend who would sit in my truck during first period. And he didn't have a class first period. I did, so he'd sit there. One day he decided to take it for a joyride. I don't know how joyful a ride it is, obviously, because it's not a great car, but takes it for a joyride. Takes it out to Rockfront Ranch on 166 out here uh, with another friend of his. They drink some beers, eat some onion dip, and crash it into a ditch. Like, ah, oh, right? They pull it out of the ditch, get it back home, and guess what? I don't really care, right? I don't really care because it's not a show car, and it's got dents and dings all over it anyway, so I'm like, yeah, it's not a big deal. What, what do I really care about what happened to this car? When I sold it, I didn't care, it was gone. Now, after my wife and I got married, we bought our first new car. It was a Toyota 4x4. It cost us $12,000. Yeah, can you imagine? Golly. Anyway, I never once got up and prayed, oh dear God, please let it start. I never did that. Because, so, and I was like, you know, hey, it's, it's gonna start. It's, it's not a big deal. But it didn't take anxiety from me because I noticed every ding. I noticed every scratch. I was worried and people parked too close to me. I would actually take, if you've ever seen this, I'd park out in the back of a parking lot to go to a store. I'll just park way out here. Nobody will park next to me. And people are so weird. It's like, hey, somebody parked out there. I'll go park out there too. <laughs> Why do people do that? I am all the way out there. You've got to walk an extra mile to the store. But, and they park like right next to you in the stall. Like, I don't know. It didn't relieve my anxiety. I had worse anxiety because of this car. Now, if I get a rental car, I don't care. We, my friends and I, we went down to Costa Rica a few years ago. And I go to the rental car company and I get the car. And they said, do you want insurance? And I said, I want the best insurance you got because I'm going to beat the snot out of this thing. Uh, <laughs> we, get, we get two blocks away from the rental car company. I look over and the freeway is on the other side of this field. So I'm like, eh. I make a left, drive over the curb, drive to the field. I get on the freeway because I don't care. My wife did. <laughs> the friends in the car did too. But anyway, Kierkegaard, Bonhoeffer, and James are all saying that stuff creates anxiety. It doesn't solve your anxiety. And if you're trying to buffer your fears with money, you've just replaced your fear with another type of fear with stuff. Because we, we can even save and plan and operate in such a way that our future looks secure. But two weeks ago, James says, you don't even know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what it brings. And don't misunderstand me. Savings and 403Bs and 401Ks and Roth IRAs, all that's really wise. We should be good stewards of our money. But there is a difference between a good, being a good steward and putting your hope and faith in it. Here's what is true. When you trust in Christ, your ultimate future is secure. That's what we know. And so today, we have a responsibility to live as the stewards that, of the stuff that God has given us. But our hope is not in our retirement. Our hope is not in our money. Our hope is not in our things. Our hope is that Christ has us and that he will hold us and he provides for us on the day of our need. So point number three, write this down. Money's dangerous. Okay. Hopefully that's making a little more sense as we get to the next verses that we're going to walk through. Because it's dangerous because we put our hope in it. 
And when we don't put our, when we put hope in that and not in God, it's going to destroy us. So James chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, he goes on. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, there's a lot there, and you're like, why does he go to murder? I've never defrauded anybody their wages. Let's see if we can't get this into our context, because naturally our hearts want to deceive us, and we have this bent, and we look at the scriptures and say, when I ever read this, whatever the victim is, that's me. And we have to look at the other side of that and say, how maybe have we defrauded other people? How have we gone our own way when other people have been in need? When we center ourselves on our stuff and monetary gain, we tend to find little ways to defraud those around us. And when you hear the word defraud, it can mean the word rob, but it can also simply mean to withhold what someone deserves. So James is trying to get us to speak about our view of living as Christians in the world. Do we believe what we say we believe? Are we reflecting God with our words and our hands and our hearts? So let me make this something really mundane to everybody, okay? Uh, you ever stiff a waiter or a waitress on a tip? Don't raise your hands. Especially <laughs> if there's a waiter or a waitress in the room like, where's your car? I'm going to, you know. No. Have you ever done that? Um, because I will tell you, waiters and waitresses, they get charged taxes on a portion of the meal that they serve you. And if you are going to go out to eat with your money, some people are like, I shouldn't have to pay for that. I'm already paying for the meal. Well, in our society and our culture, you go out to eat, you need to tip. You just do. It's part of going out to eat. You're welcome if you're in the service industry, by the way. Um, I, my, my wife and I were at Shelbridge Brew House probably a couple years before COVID. And I, for some reason, I was going through and I, and I left a tip and I, and I looked at my receipt and I was like, oh no, because I, I did the math wrong. I don't know how you do math wrong in this, but I did the math. I'm like, oh. And I actually drove up there three days later, found that waitress, and I gave her money. And I said, I'm really sorry. I did not mean to stiff you on the tip. For some reason, just kind of out of my mind. And I made sure I went back and paid. Because if we're going to do that, we do that. We don't withhold. That's what people deserve. If you are going to go out to eat, if you don't want to tip, don't go out to eat. Okay. I'm not in the service industry, guys. I, 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 don't, I don't get paid from you guys by raising my capital here. That's not how that works. Okay. So uh, you ever buy something on Craigslist or, or a yard sale and you think, man, that's totally worth it, but you still try and talk them down anyway? My wife, she's great because if she goes, she finds something that she likes, I'm like, oh, barter with them. And, she, and she's like, no, it's totally worth that. And I'm like, oh, because I love to barter. I just like to argue. But yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, it, it's, James here is kind of talking about you know, employers and employees in this, those who work for a wage, but it all goes back to our heart's attitudes. You've got to think about this in, in really mundane ways of how we look towards our own hearts. You ever tell a friend you'll pay them back, but you never do? You ever say, hey, let's go halfers on that, and so they pay for it, you never give them half of what you're supposed to give them? You ever borrow somebody's car and not fill it up when you give it back? Guys, it's, it's like this is the thing because we are looking towards ourselves. I don't want to have to fill it up. I don't have to. That would take too much money for me. You're borrowing their car. It's their car. See, money and how we focus on it gets us to a place where we run headlong towards self-indulgent lifestyles. I had somebody borrow my truck this week and they filled it up full. Had half a tank when they took it. And that's a lot of money if you don't know nowadays. It's like, and my truck's got a big tank. And it came out. I'm like, that's amazing. Borrow my truck anytime you want. See, when, we, when we're self-focused, <laughs> every time it gets to empty, you need it? I'll let you borrow it. <laughs> Our self-focus gets us to a place where we can use or withhold or even abuse people. And that's done in major and minor ways. As I said, it comes down to heart issues where we're not willing to sacrifice for those around us and what is right. We could pay. 
but we don't really want to. It's inconvenient. And this is why sometimes people don't give to their local churches and to God himself. Because, oh, it's inconvenient. I've done all these things in my, in my month. I don't have much left over. Well, we're not called to give God our leftovers. We're called to give God our first fruits from the very beginning. Not, not giving to God or not giving to others the things that they are due is helping ourselves live in self-indulgence. And so James says, you fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's all about you. You are giving to yourself. And without understanding the gospel, we're going to have this bottom line mentality that hurts others and focuses on ourselves. And James says, if we want to be a people who follow Christ and say you're an employer, then sometimes you give up you making more in order to give your workers better health care or give them a raise. It has been shown by social researchers that self-indulgence through the accumulation of wealth is progressively addictive for us. And generosity is a way that starts to break that. So James then says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is referring to judicial and societal conditions that lift up one group while it holds another group down. And think that hasn't been in the news of the political arena, you know, the last few years. Because what happens always seems to happen. Those in power make laws favorable to them. Now, th this isn't meant to be a political statement at all, and so please don't take it that way. But have you seen what has happened in Congress over the last decade? Uh, we have passed this health care system in our country. And, and I am not saying I'm for or against nationwide health care. Put down your pitchforks. Don't stab me. All I'm talking is about is the system that we got. We know it is a subpar health care system. You know how we know that? Everybody in Congress exempted themselves from that. We don't have to be part of that, but everybody else does. And that's how you know. They lift themselves up. They exempt themselves from the things that they put on everybody else. And this is what James is saying is evil. This happens all the time. Go back you know, a little bit ago. O.J. Simpson, right, kills two people, gets off for it because he's rich. Rock stars, manslaughter, they're always getting busted for tons of drugs, and they get out of jail. Where you and me, we got busted, we'd be in jail all the, all the time. Governors, mayors, presidents, presidents' kids with laptops, they, they lie and they cheat and they steal and they, and they get away with things where we would be in jail. There's this old adage that says, and it's, and it's pretty true, about when you see evil in the world, you follow the money. You follow the money. And that's why point number four, money's dangerous. Money's dangerous. Because in the end, it always seems to come down to who has what and how to protect it. And this is why James, through these verses, says, this should not be us. This is not how we live, because our focus should be on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because into our mess, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit speaks of a better way. Our deceitful heart is always like, this is the way to happiness. This is the thing that you need. This is going to be fulfillment. Don't let anybody get in your way. And if you think your heart doesn't do that to you, you, you are giving in to lies because our hearts do that all the time. Every day, our hearts are like, hey, you need this. Hey, you want this. Hey, no one should stop you from getting this. Hey, your stuff is old. You need new stuff. Hey, your phone doesn't recognize your face ID. You need a new phone. Hey, it's always telling us we need something new and different than we have. And then if we get that thing, then we will be fulfilled. Oh, you've earned this, and you deserve it. And it all leads to us putting ourselves before others because we are unaware of deception that goes on in our own hearts. Think about the clothes that you were even wearing today. I mean, I tell you this, I buy most of my clothes on the clearance rack. But even saying that, that's my badge of honor. I wear the clothes I do to be like, I'm a cheapskate. But I'm, I'm making a statement with what I am wearing. And we all have been discipled in our world in which we live that has defined for us what is attractive. 
And so it could be the car you drive, uh, could be the home you live in, could be the clothes you wear, it could be the phone that you have, it could be the sports team you support and the jersey with the right number on it and, and all that. For guys, for years it has defined what is manly, for women it has defined what is feminine, and in our culture sometimes those things look a lot alike, but we allow sources that are not God himself to define for us what our life should look like. And it is a lie. It creates a toxicity that if we are not careful, we're going to breathe it in. And this is why that author says only the gospel can deliver us from that. Hopefully I haven't depressed you, okay? But how does the gospel deliver? I'll give you three real points now if you want to write these down. Okay, first, the whole, I think I put it in your notes, by the way. The whole basis of the gospel is rooted in God's generosity towards us. The whole basis of the gospel. And this is why we as a people, when we understand the gospel, we become a generous people. In Romans chapter 1, Paul points out that everybody is guilty of preferring the creation over the creator. We want the things that God gives and not necessarily God himself. I will love God and God's supposed to bless me and it's supposed to look like this when he blesses me with his stuff. And we are all so fickle. God's response to our crazy fickleness is that he sends his son. God responds to us and our fickleness with generosity. And Jesus dies on the cross, absorbs God's wrath against our sin, and then imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. The gospel shows us the generosity of God, and it grants us a new identity. And when we live in the understanding of that new identity, it creates a buffer against the barrage of toxicity that comes out of our culture. Second thing is this, the gospel changes our identity from rebels, from running from God, to being children of God. That we have been adopted by the blood of Christ according to the will of God. That is our identity. Everything else might get convoluted in our lives at times. We'll get distracted by all of these things. But no matter what, you have to come back to remember, we are His Period. We are not defined by our car, our house, our phone. We're not defined by what people think about us. The gospel creates that buffer when we trust in it that reshapes and reframes our lives and our loves. Third thing is this. We are invited out of, out of the mundane things that the world throws at us, and we are invited into the greatest story ever told. Because money cannot buy mission. Money cannot buy purpose. A mission is bestowed by God himself. It's not purchased other than with the blood of Christ. We have been rescued from our sin. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit's power and promise. We have been sent out to push back the dark things in the world with the light of Christ. And we have a victory that is guaranteed by our King. That's what we need to understand. And we need to see money that way, that our gifts, our energy, our resources have been given to us by God so we can participate with him in pushing back that darkness in the world. There is this beautiful word in the Bible. We talk about it at Element a lot, and it's called repentance. And when we hear the word repent, you think of somebody in downtown New York City with a sandwich board going, the end of the world is near. Repent is a beautiful word. It means you turn away from the direction you're going. It means to come home to who God is calling us to be because of what God has accomplished for us in Christ. We no longer have to see things around us merely at an earthly level. I mean, in, in one sense, yes, we do need to get better with our financial wisdom in that, but we are a people who can now pursue contentment because God has saved us. How do we pursue contentment? We become acquainted with what God has already blessed us with. Rather than spending all of your time wishing for something else, look at what you already have. Everything in your hands has already been given to you by God as a blessing. And that means that we do not have anything in our lives which is not somehow connected already to the graciousness of God towards us. We are all blessed and all we have belongs to God. 
If you want to be someone who begins to grow in contentment, cultivate gratitude for what you already have, and you know what's coming, be generous. See, we are meant to live what the Bible calls open-handed, generous lives. And this comes down to learning to be a generous people, learning to give. Throughout the Old Testament, there is this standard that it puts there. It's called a tithe at 10%. And it's not a law, like if you were in the Old Testament and you didn't give 10% of your income, nobody took you outside of the city and stoned you or anything like that. They didn't chop your arms off or throw you in jail. It wasn't anything like that. But it was this thing that God pushed his people towards. And even today, again, social researchers look at that and they say if people give 10%, that's a pain point in most people's lives. And that's the thing, it's like, ooh, ooh, because you think about it, and it's front and center in your mind when you do that, that I am being generous. God has called me to this area, and it's, and it's hard. But as we do it, it actually teaches us to trust God more and to be more generous. I got to, if you are, if you make 10 bucks and you give away a buck, not a big deal, right? You make, you know, $10,000, you give away 1000 That that's harder. You make a million dollars, give away $100,000, whoo, that's a pain point. That, that's really hard. But what it starts to do is change us. It stops as a scene. Everything is just our own. And in what happens, we start growing in contentment and generosity because we're not the center of our own financial world. Because you want to live what a resurrected life actually looks like that's not beholden to stuff? We trust Jesus. We, we walk with him. We, we are content when we walk with him. We become generous as he calls us to. And as I know, I keep saying money is dangerous, but I will tell you, money is also grace. It is grace that God has given us the ability to be generous and steward his stuff. Because when we start to be a generous people, when we start to steward well and learn the grace that money is with our words, our hands, and our hearts, we start to reflect who God is more and more in our lives. And we are, uh, reflecting God doesn't save us. It doesn't, it doesn't make God go, oh yeah, they're the best. Have you seen, you know, we're not like Joe where he's trying to hold Joe up. We are a people who when we give, it's simply a reflection of understanding more and more of the grace that God has first given us. That's why we become a generous people. Because we understand first the generosity of God. And every week at Element, we try and bring you guys to this place of communion. Because it's a reminder of God's generosity. It resets our hearts. It resets our focus to see who He is. And that is why you break the cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. He was broken so that we were not, we were already broken and He was broken for us. And then you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of His blood that was shed for you and me. Because our blood cannot atone for our sin. And so Christ's blood atones for us. And so this is why when we take communion, we remember what Christ did in graciousness to rescue and to save and to love and bring us to himself. Now, uh, we do have communion a couple different ways. In the back, if you need gluten-free, uh, there's actually gluten-free crackers in the back. If you are worried about you know, COVID germs still going around and stuff, there are single-use cups as well. You can grab one of those and do communion with that. We're trying to make it so that we can all take communion in a way that goes back and reflects on who God is, because that's the point. Communion's not magical. But it is a spiritual thing that takes us back and resets us and reminds us, first and foremost, of God's generosity given to us. And so we do this and surrender ourselves. And remember, God has first been generous with me. I don't be generous to make God love me. I come to this place to remember who God is and what he has done because it resets our hearts and our focus and our mind. And if you need prayer today, you can grab Sarah or Justine at the Welcome Center. They'll connect with one of us. Maybe, maybe your financial life is just in shambles and you don't know what to do. Every once in a while we do this thing called Financial Peace University. There's not one on the horizon yet. There will be eventually. But if you need to talk to somebody about finances and kind of work through some things, we'd love to connect you with somebody. Because I think that we need to learn to understand how to handle those things well because that will teach us how to be more and more generous in our lives. 
And generosity moves us out from being self-focused, being focused on what God is calling us to. So if you need help, grab them. We'll connect you. We'd love to pray with you this morning. Uh, grab the sermon notes. There's questions in there. And maybe talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about those to kind of reflect on what we talk about. But I did want to end with the idea that we are people who do give. At Element, we specifically, since the day that we started, never passed a plate. Because it's always meant to be a response to what God has done. And this is why we put offering boxes on the side walls. This is why you can give online. Because we are not trying to force anybody. We are called to be a people who are joyful givers, sacrificial givers, generous givers. But we're never called to be forced into giving. And nobody is. It's, it's always meant to be a response to God's great love first given to us. And I want to tell you, Element, we are a giving church. You guys astound me every year. Last year, we gave away over $80,000 to help different people around the world in different communities because, because you guys are so generous. And, the, and it's beautiful. And I, and I hope that we can do even more than that this year just to keep going and giving and loving the world around us. God has called us not to be a self-centered people, but a generous people. And, but we will only do that when we focus on him first and what he has first given us. And then we will go and be that generous people. So there's offering boxes and you want to give because God has been so generous. We encourage you guys to do that because he's good. Let's learn to be a generous people with, with our finances, with the things that we have, but also with our love to those around us who desperately need it because God has first loved us in saving us and rescuing us. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would take us and move us to be a people who understand what you have first already given to us, that we would find this deep sense of contentment when we understand the gospel message correctly. And that as we understand this gospel message, that it would start to change our own hearts to be a generous people who are not just solely focused inwardly, but we become focused outward on who you are calling us to be. I ask that you would give us the, the grace and the conviction and the strength to, to look at how we are currently spending the resources you've given to us. And if it's not in great ways, I ask that we wouldn't be overwhelmed with the shame of that, but we'd understand the good news of your rescue and that we would start to live now in joy as we surrender everything to you. That our lives would be marked by joy and contentment and generosity and love and the grace that you have first given to us. That our focus would not be ourselves. Our focus would be you first and foremost. Father, too often in this world, when people talk about money and giving, it's so even self-focused. And we don't want that to be us. We want all that we do to be a response to understanding the good news of your great rescue over us. We want the gospel to be what changes our lives. And then that we would just simply live humbly before you, honoring you in all things, because you are the only one who is deserving of honor and worship and glory. Teach us to live in the beauty and the grace of understanding the salvation that we have received. Living that out so the world would know how good you are. And when people ask us, why in the world are you so generous? We would simply be able to say, because God has been generous with me. Have us live as a response 
to your great generosity. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. I'm going to Phil drop the curtains. And I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago, and, and they said, sometimes at the end of your messages, when you give us something to think about, you give us like three or four things, and I can't remember all those things. So I'm going to try and give you like one thing. I'll, I'll, kind, of, I'll kind of walk you there. I'd like you to think about right now, without all the distractions, what things that you are putting your hope in. If you, if you have in your mind, if I only had that, then I'd be okay. If I only had this much in my savings, I'd be like, how much? And, and maybe, instead of looking at that, ask God this morning, God, where are you teaching me to trust you? Where are you teaching me to be generous where I haven't been generous? And begin to step out. It could be in, in tiny, small ways. But where is God calling you in your heart to be generous right now? To trust him for every part of your life so that you would surrender all of that to him. And then as you start to walk through those things, come and take communion, sing some songs with us, and we'll worship God and we'll walk outside of these walls today, maybe a little different than when we came in, trusting Christ more and being one more content, but also a more generous people.